times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared, enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. So I've been working out the details of my upcoming vacation. As a famous celebrity, I'm used to staying in the best hotels, traveling via private jet, dining out at the finest restaurants with an ever-revolving circle of my celebrity friends. (laughs) In May, though, things will be different. Gold Meadow is a special kind of resort. According to the pamphlet, spend time in a rustic cabin, go orienteering through our mystical orchards, trek through the woods. Can you find the rumored witch's cabin? Explore the ruins of the former village, affectionately called Old Gold by resort staff, and maybe find a treasure from a bygone era. Feast with the other holidaymakers in our large dining area, constructed on the site of the old village's festival hall. Go boating, canoeing, and even jet skiing on Lake Aurelia. Or as a group, dive beneath the surface with a trained staff member for a guided tour of the flooded church where Reverend Booth once delivered his sermons. And if you prefer a calmer change of pace, then visit our small museum, chronicling the beautiful yet tragic history of Gold Meadow. Read about their customs, globally unique to this almost inaccessible village in the middle of nowhere. Check out the small yet meaningful items we've managed to salvage from days whence. And they're internationally renowned, but did you know that iconic mega-hit band Aquatofana began life in Gold Meadow? And it was in Gold Meadow that they wrote and first performed their breakout hit, Year of the Goat, which led to their superstardom. And if you don't mind struggling to sleep at night, why not read the theories of what happened that day in 1967 when the entire town disappeared without a trace? As a VIP guest, you'll be part of the first group invited into Gold Meadow in over 50 years. We hope you enjoy your stay. So there you go. That's just some of what the pamphlet promises. But uh, hmm, now that I think about it, something in that last paragraph strikes me as incorrect. But I can't put my finger on why. Ah, well, in time, I suppose. Now let's get on with this week's haunting episode. 
In our first tale, we join a man who lives in a strange town called Habitsville. Some of you may have taken a trip to Habitsville with us before, and for others it may be a first-time visit. And in this tale, shared with us by author Samuel Singer, we're invited to hang out in a particularly unusual joint. I join Jesse Cornett, Kyle Akers, Peter Lewis, Mary Murphy, and Mike Delgadio in performing this tale. So let's head to the piano bar and listen to a peculiar musician tinkling the ivories. Rumor has it, if you give him a tooth, he'll play you a memory. Not far from my place in Habitsville, there's a piano bar. It's literally called the Piano Bar. One of those places with the ironically obvious name. I've never been there before. I know, yet another place in my own hometown that I've never visited. (laughs) I don't get out much. I had heard about the Piano Bar from our new intern at the Habitsville Gazette, Luke. Luke is a young, goofy kid in his second year of college. And if I had to guess, I wouldn't say he was particularly socially skilled or especially popular. He wore those very large, square, wire-framed glasses that made him look far too intellectual. Even though, in reality, he wasn't at all. So I immediately thought it was odd that he frequented a high-end piano bar in downtown Habitsville. The music that drifted out of it was always either classical or jazz and the people I saw entering and leaving were always dressed up. But still, Luke continually vouched for the place, saying that it had even become a nightly routine of his to finish up his work at the paper, then head down to the piano bar. And at first, I didn't think too much about his newfound passion. But then I noticed the holes in his mouth. I hadn't seen them initially, I believe this was because it was the back molars that went missing first. But after a few days, the gaps began creeping in towards the center until I couldn't not see them. So even though it seemed sort of rude and I didn't know Luke all that well, I decided to ask just as we were about to leave for the night. Uh, Hey, Luke, do you mind if I ask you and odd question. (laughs) He smiled at me, that bright smile of the young and disillusioned, minus a few teeth. Go for it. I tried to keep my gaze from drifting to the peaks of thrashing tongue I could see through the dark spaces in his gums and instead strove to maintain eye contact. Uh, What's happened to your teeth? To my great surprise, he didn't seem offended or even taken aback by my sudden inquiry. Instead, his broken grin only widened. I told you, I've been going to that piano bar every night. I waited for more details to come, but none did. And that took your teeth? He laughed, a wet, soft (laughs) sound. I know it sounds weird, but trust me, it's worth it. And then he said something, something that for the life of me, I couldn't wrap my head around. If you give the piano man a tooth, 
He'll play you a memory. I opened my mouth to ask a follow-up question, but Luke's bag was already on his shoulder. I've really got to get going. You got to get there kind of early if you want him to play you a song, or else, you know. But of course, I did not know. Luke seemed really anxious to leave, so I bid him good night. We both left, heading in opposite directions. He to the piano bar and me to my home to sit and stew over what I had been told. And then, the next day, Luke didn't show up for work. We thought he might have been ill, and like the kid that he is, forgotten to call in and let us know he wouldn't be coming in that day. But then the next day came, and still, there was no Luke. We sent someone to go around to his apartment and knock on the door, but there was no answer. I knew it was quite a leap in logic to make, but the investigative reporter inside of me couldn't seem to shake the idea that the piano bar had something to do with Luke's disappearance. So that's why, on a Thursday night, I found myself severely underdressed and seated on a stool in the darkest corner of the mystery piano bar. There were all sorts in the crowd that night, people I had never seen on the streets or in the shops around Habitsville. I wondered if they had traveled from out of town just to come there. But the main sight was in the very center of the room. It was a huge piano, grand in every sense of the word. Although the bar itself was dimly lit and a tad smoky, every ounce of light in the space was reflected against the jet black sheen of the great instrument. On top of the piano, in an odd sort of display, were an assortment of objects. There was an elaborate hairpin with a metal bumblebee on the end, a few assorted rings, a pair of gloves. But there was one item in particular that caught my eye because they were so familiar. Large, square, wire-framed glasses. I could hear bits and pieces of ambient music coming from the keys stroked by the fingers of one of the most striking human beings I had ever seen, the Piano Man. His hair was perfectly sculpted and his suit was dark green velvet with a silky black bow tie. His hands moved steadily across the keys, but his eyes weren't watching them. Instead, his irises, nearly the same green as his suit, wandered over the chattering crowd a content smile on his closed lips. I jumped as a loud bell tolled throughout the room, though no one else seemed to share my reaction. Immediately, all of the patrons fell silent, and there was a great shift as each of them turned their attention and their bodies towards the piano man, like planets orbiting some bright sun. He had stopped playing, the final notes echoing in the air as he pulled his hands back and gracefully stood up from his bench. He took a moment in the silence to gaze over the crowd, turning a full circle around the room. There was a moment when I felt though he met my eyes, and a shiver ran down my spine. Then suddenly, he reached out his arm and pointed the woman at the end of his finger immediately turned red and uneasily gestured to herself. Me? Yes, of course, you. The piano man's voice was as smooth as silk and warm as summer. The woman clasped her hands together, the look on her face that of pure joy. 
She stepped forward, separating herself from the rest of the crowd. The piano man stared at her for another moment before sitting back down to his bench. There was a breath, a second of ringing silence, and then he played the most beautiful music I had ever heard in my life. I'm not a big music person. I don't know composers besides the basics, and even less actual music pieces. I'm more of a podcast guy, to be sure. But there was something about this that was different. It was hypnotic, almost. There was no way to tell how long the actual song was, because from the moment it began to the second it ended, it was as though I was suspended in a trance of joyful derealization. But eventually the last note was played, My eyes refocused, and I saw that although the song had quite an impact on myself, it was even more transformative to the woman the piano man had chosen. She was sobbing, large tears rolling down her cheeks, her shoulders shaking with emotion. When the piano man stood up again, she immediately wrapped her arms around him. Thank you. Thank you. The piano man waited a moment then gently pushed the woman back. The applause died down. The piano man looked the woman in the eyes, and then he grinned. And I could see, even from the corner where I was sitting, that he was missing teeth. There were three open spaces in his mouth, two on the bottom and one to the left of his very front teeth. He smiled at the woman who was still racked with the emotions the performance had brought on. Then he spoke. Time for your payment. There was a flash of something like fear on the woman's face, but then she nodded, and she did something incredibly strange, something that I did not expect at all. She opened her mouth. The piano man raised his hand, the same one that had played the key so beautifully and elegantly. He slowly brought it forwards until the majority of it was in the woman's mouth. I could hear her breathing fast and wheezy with the obstruction. Her eyes watered even more than they had before, and she let out a few high-pitched squeaks of pain. The piano man's arm began to vibrate with effort. The woman's face turned a violent shade of red, and then the piano man's hand reemerged, and I could see it between his fingertips. Pink with blood, but shining all the same, was one large tooth pulled out to the root. A line of blood dripped from the woman's open mouth as she brought a comforting hand to the side of her jaw. She stepped backwards to her spot in the crowd. A few patted her on the shoulder. But most had their attention still turned to the man in the green suit in the center of the room. He stared at the tooth and held it aloft to the light, as though admiring a pearl he'd just pulled from a clam. And then, he did something that's so odd, I doubted I had seen it correctly. He threw it directly up in the air, like tossing a coin, and as it fell down, he opened his jaw wide and caught it in his mouth. Then, with one heavy, wet sound, he swallowed it. But he wasn't done. He brought one of his hands to his face, the thumb and pointer finger pressed into a crescent. He stuck his fingers into his mouth, 
breathed in hard, and then exhaled. There was a high-pitched whistle, and then an audible snap resonated in the room. The piano man paused, then he smiled for his audience, and I could see that which was impossible. One of the spaces in his bottom teeth had filled in, as though nothing had ever been missing to begin with. It was incredible. (laughs) Of course it was incredible. He did it one more time that night, nearly the same, start to finish. Only it was a man the second time, and the melody he played was a bit different. Sadder, somehow, but still absolutely riveting. He pulled the tooth, swallowed it, whistled, and the other spot on his bottom row was filled in. And then, as the room watched in silence, he walked away from the piano and out the front door of the bar. In a few minutes, the patrons, too, left the piano bar. They milled about on the street outside, chatting and smoking. There was no sign of the piano man, so I tried to glean some more information from the conversations of the various groups. I found the woman who was chosen for the first song, chatting with a man. It's amazing, isn't it? I saw her. I mean, I really saw her. I saw my mother. It's truly remarkable. A pity about the tooth, though. I must have been standing a bit too close to them because soon the man seemed to notice that I was lurking nearby. Can we help you? He gave an unsubtle glance at my lackluster wardrobe. I I was just wondering. uh, I mean, I wanted to know. It's hard when your questions are so big to put them into the confines of words. What was that? In there. The woman raised her eyebrows. Have you never been to the piano bar, dear? She winced, placing her hand back onto her cheek, which was starting to swell. I shook my head. Oh, well, what a treat for you. She attempted a smile, then dropped it once she felt the pain. It's really quite simple. The piano man takes a single tooth from you, and in exchange, he'll let you relive a memory you've forgotten. I shook my head. What do you mean, a memory you've forgotten? Well, it's exactly as it sounds, boy. Be patient with him, Rupert. The woman looked back to me kindly. To be honest, no one's quite sure how he does it. But if the piano man chooses you... He's able to play you a song that will help you remember something you don't know you've forgotten. Something you don't know is important. Her voice grew soft and misty, and her eyes glimmered. I saw an afternoon with my mother when I was four. We had tomato sandwiches by the lake. She braided my hair. I was too young to remember, but now my mother's gone. And I want every piece of her that I can get. I tried to understand what she was saying. But your... your tooth... She shook her head, once again fighting a smile back down. For the chance to have a bit more time with someone you've lost, what would you not be willing to give up for something like that? I nodded, though the entire thing was difficult to believe. 
But there had been something about that music, something in the air, and the fact that people were so willing to pay in pain for each performance. Thank you. I think. I think I'll come back tomorrow night. There was a falter in the woman's expression. Oh, I... The man put his hand on her shoulder, and she stopped speaking. You do that, son. Come on, Bonnie. We've got to be getting home. The woman, Bonnie, looked at me for another moment, as though she wanted to say something. Then she turned, and the two of them walked back down the street. Despite the odd feeling that Bonnie had given me, I did come back the next night. I sat in the same seat, a stool near the back, and the rest of the piano bar was almost identical to what it had been the first night, except for a few things. For one, the crowd was much smaller. It was thinned out considerably since the previous performance, and those that were here had an odd atmosphere to them. It seemed nervous, almost. A certain apprehension that hadn't been there before. Secondly, the piano man himself wasn't playing idling little memories in the center of the room. Instead, he was playing with gusto at full volume. There was an energy to him that evening, an eagerness, and it was coming out in some of the most elaborate piano playing I had ever seen. Still, his eyes didn't watch his hands and instead scanned the room. I could see the one remaining gap in his teeth, black and hollow through the thin sneer of his lips. There was a man sitting next to me that night, and like me, he didn't quite seem like he belonged there. He wore a collared shirt and worn khakis, and I got the impression that those were probably the nicest clothes he had something he wore to church on Sundays. Despite this, he was wearing a faded blue baseball cap that was ripped around the brim, nearly falling apart. He was in his late 40s, though his face was lined far more than his years would suggest. His hands were rough and cracked, and he picked at his fingers. He watched the piano man closely, and his leg shook restlessly. Are you looking forward to the show? He gave me a sideways glance, and his legs stopped moving. Yes? No? I don't know. He paused for a moment, and I thought perhaps that was all he was going to say. I just hope he picks me. Uh, really? What are you hoping to see? He gave me another sideways look, and I thought for a moment that I had overstepped. This was a personal thing, after all. But then... He answered. My son. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, he was so young when he, you know, and I wasn't much of a father then. I wasn't around like I was supposed to be. When I was, he trailed off, and I could tell how much it pained him to even speak on the topic. He reached up his fingertips brushing gently against the torn brim of his hat. This is the hat I got at the first baseball game we went to. First and only. 
He brought his hand back down to his lap. I just want to see what I was missing. No matter the cost. I nodded, a brief pang of sadness resonating in my chest for this stranger. Well, it seems like the cost is only one tooth. So that's not so bad, right? The man raised his eyebrows at me and I immediately got the sense that I was missing something. The price is a bit steeper tonight, pal. Before I could ask any more questions, there it was again. The bell tolled, and all attention turned to the center of the room. The piano man finished his song with a flourish, and quite literally jumped up from his bench. He surveyed the crowd with excitement his tongue peeking out of his mouth and licking his lips as he swiveled his head around. Again, I thought for a moment that he had caught my eye and I fought to look away. Then, he raised his arm and pointed. The man next to me, whose name I never caught, got up from his stool and made his way to the center of the piano bar. Hello, sir. Thank you so much for volunteering. The man hadn't made any sound or gesture, as far as I could tell. Somehow, the piano man could tell that he wanted to be chosen. The man didn't say anything. The piano man stepped back around to his piano, sat at his bench, and began to play. I couldn't see the memory that the piano man's song played, but I could certainly feel it. It was like an aching nostalgia deep in my stomach for something I had never experienced. Not just never experienced, something I had desperately yearned for. I felt that pure sensation of want so terribly. It made my eyes water. And then, it was over. It was the shortest song yet. I looked to the man. He was still standing straight, but his hands were clenched into fists at his sides. His hat was low over his eyes, but there were tears rolling down his cheeks, and though he tried to contain it, a great cough of a sob came from his throat, strangled and sad. The piano man gave him a moment. Then he stood, grinning ear to ear. He put a hand on the man's shoulder. Time for your payment. The man hesitated, but only for a moment. Then his jaw fell open, and he let the piano man reach inside. He didn't stick his hand in far, and in fact only grabbed hold of one of the man's front teeth. Then he began to pull. The man let out a long groan as they struggled. And then, the piano man held the tooth aloft, an expression of sheer delight on his face. The man looked at it his face stony. Then, just as he had the night before, the piano man tossed the tooth high up in the air, threw his head back, and caught it in his mouth. He swallowed it. Then he brought his fingers to his mouth. The whistle was so loud and shrill, the members of the audience had to cover their ears. A trickle of blood ran down from my eardrums to my neck as I uncovered them but I could still hear it when the piano man smiled, a full, complete smile. 
His teeth, if I can truly call them his teeth, shone like jewels in the light of the piano bar. Then he opened his jaw wide. Then he opened it wider and wider and wider. The man who had given him his final tooth hadn't stepped back to join the crowd. Instead, he stood, his head down, his shoulders tensed. The piano man wiped his mouth and adjusted his velvet green suit. He bent down and picked up the worn blue baseball cap that had landed on the floor of the piano bar. He glided back to his instrument and placed the hat on the gleaming surface of his piano right next to the large, square, wire-framed glasses. Then he smiled a toothless, gummy grin. It's amazing how far the field of medicine has come. These days, you can have many different body parts removed due to medical necessity and go on to live a perfectly normal life. Not everything can be excised, though. And in this tale, shared with us by author Robbie Slavin, a group of friends discover a company that claim to be able to remove things other than the physical. Performing this tale is Ellie Hirschman. So let's find out if this really is a wonder cure, or if it's just snake oil that's going to bite you in the ass when you try getting rid of your demons. It was my friend's successes that convinced me to try it. Results don't lie. And two of my friends that I had forever seen as fuck-ups were now completely different people. Rob was the first to try it. He had been an alcoholic since our college days and had tried everything to be free from it. It had dragged him back into his own personal hell every single time he tried to escape it. One day, he told me that he had beaten it. All in the space of a day. Bullshit, I told him. The only way he was beating his demon would be through death. As the days passed, I realized he was telling the truth. My self-destructing friend was now a changed man. He got a steady job, made amends with his family, and hell, even his wife took him back. The secret to his success? He had found a company in the city that promised they could get rid of any demon using technology. He said they hooked him up to a machine for about an hour and straight away he felt cured. They didn't even charge him a lot of money. Bullshit, I said to myself. Ted, my friend with anger and drug issues, followed suit, and suddenly he was a clean living inspiration of a man. Like I said, results don't lie. That's what led me to this miracle-working company. I didn't tell anyone I was going. Firstly, because I'm a private person. And secondly, because no one knew I had demons of my own. I wanted to keep it that way. The waiting room was empty, 
as I entered the building. Quite surprising for a place that promised a magical quick fix in making people better versions of themselves. I felt stupid being there, but before I could change my mind, the receptionist smiled, asked me for my name, and told me to take a seat. Minutes later, a man came out and led me into a back room. He asked me what demons I wanted rid of, and I asked if it mattered. He said it didn't, but that one of the perks of his job was being nosy. I told him I had pretty much everything going, and all my little demons had combined to make one big super demon, so he should just give me the works, full package. He laughed at this and said it was all the same price. No demon was too big or too small. I doubt that, I said to myself. Walking out of that building, I felt reborn. It's hard to describe. It felt like a large part of my mind was my own again. I felt fresh, new, and limitless. I knew it wasn't a passing feeling. My demon really was gone. I walked all the way home in a daze, feeling like I was looking at the world through new eyes. I went into my bathroom at home and stared at myself in the mirror. I shut the door behind me and turned to look at my reflection again. I smiled. Suddenly, the smile dropped from my face as I heard my front door at the end of the hall close, followed by footsteps coming in the direction of the bathroom. I live alone. Who the fuck was in my home? I quickly locked the bathroom door and backed away from it. The footsteps continued, then stopped just outside my door. I held my breath. Who's out there? I finally managed to say. I'm calling the cops. I realized this wasn't an option as I had left my phone on the desk outside the bathroom door. I never bring it into the bathroom. Stupid move. Shit. Suddenly a piece of paper was shoved under the bathroom door. Guess who was written on it? The writing was familiar. Too familiar. The bathroom I was in has no windows and instead has an extractor fan, so I quickly realized I was trapped. Please, take whatever you want and leave. I, I swear I won't call the cops after you're gone. I... I was interrupted by a laugh, full of amusement and malice from the other side of the door, before a voice, my voice, started to speak. Did you honestly think you could get rid of me? How many people did we kill together? Thirteen? Unlucky for them, right? <laughs> You're not real! You were a voice in my head! My mind was spinning as I frantically looked around the bathroom for a way out. My panic increased when I realized the only way out was through the door through whatever was standing there. You know what the funny thing is? There were 12 people in that building after I was ripped from you. I showed up just after you left. You should have seen their faces. Now you'll be my 13th since I went solo. The difference between me and you is I don't plan to stop there. Now here I am, as trapped and helpless as my victims felt before the end. Some demons are too big to get rid of. When you reach a big milestone in life, it can warrant celebrating. Going on vacation is a good way to do that. What about a cross-country drive? Sounds fun, right? But in this tale, shared with us by author C.B. Jones, 
one woman's trek is interrupted by a mysterious broadcast and a presenter who is no stranger to dishing out advice. Performing this tale are Wafia White, Atticus Jackson, Mick Wingert, Graham Rowett, and Kyle Akers. So don't adjust your dial. Buck Hensley was worth tuning into last time, and I'm sure he will be here too. So let's listen to The Rules of the Road, Traveling Alone. You know it's not very safe for a girl out there alone and on the road. This is something that I heard all the time. No matter the journey, no matter the situation, and no matter my history of traveling alone as a female without incident. I rolled my eyes in response to Jamie's words of caution. It's just something I've never really had to think about. Like, as a guy. You know, need to go down to the store by myself late at night? I do it without thinking. Drink at a bar alone? Check. I can do it without getting creeped on. I mean, I guess I could get robbed, but they might be less apt to jump a 180-pound guy versus whatever you're checking in at these days. Bitch, do you want to go? I will get you on the ground and have you tapping out in five seconds. Although it had been a few months, I had taken some Brazilian jiu-jitsu classes and had grappled my brother into submission many a time. He said he was going to go to a class so he could beat me, but he never did. Ha <laughs> ha, no thanks. I know how that'll end. Seriously, Les, just be careful out there. As your older brother, I'm obligated to tell you these things. If you could just wait a couple weeks until I get my time off... I could go with you. Can't wait. The mountains are calling me, and I must go. I've got a schedule to work around to, you know? You got your taser? Pepper spray? Knife? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fine, fine. Well, I'll see you down there in a few weeks. And update me on your itinerary as you go. I don't need Mom freaking out while you're off the grid. Will do, Brosef. My older brother Jamie and I were close. About as close as a pair of siblings could get. Sometimes I could almost consider him my best friend. In fact, based on our long-time shared history and his loyalty and consistency throughout our lives, he was probably best friend runner-up. I had planned this trip for a while now. Graduating from the University of Michigan this past spring, I was taking a long summer trip before I had to start grad school in the fall. I was going on an epic cross-country trip, solo for big portions of it. I would start at Zion and Arches down in Utah and then wind over to Yosemite and up towards the Pacific Northwest. I was meeting a guy from school down for some rock climbing and would meet other various friends along the way. My brother was planning on meeting me in Yosemite. I was looking forward to the adventure. And so, with my bags packed, plenty of snacks and water, and a Spotify playlist I had labored over for the past week, 
I set off on the road. I didn't get out as early as I had wanted. The bed just seemed too cozy. But by 10 o'clock, I was heading west. I was just outside of Omaha by 11, and I found a La Quinta Inn. After a mediocre continental breakfast, I was back on the road. I was planning on taking a more scenic route in my approach to Zion, cutting through the northern part of Colorado and making my way down. After sobering up from a flight of beers at a brewery pit stop in Fort Collins, I was on the road once again, and the night was all around me. By then, my road trip playlist was getting old, and my mind was numb and loopy. I was just about to turn it off and drive in sweet silence for a while when a song I was playing suddenly sped up, sounding like Alvin and the Chipmunks. I laughed at how it sounded while the speed devolved into a high-pitched whine. There was a thumping followed by a voice emerging from my speakers. Hiya folks, Bucks Hensley here with another episode of Rules of the Road. I interrupt your Spotify playlist tonight with a special message from our sponsors. I'd like to tell you about a little product I have available known as Buck's Sassy Sarsaparilla. Feeling a little down? A sip of Buck's Sassy Sarsaparilla will perk you right up. Feeling a little too up and on edge? A sip of Buck's will calm you right down. Feeling a little too constrained by the linear progression of time and casual events? A sip of Buck's will get you all shook up and allow you to experience everything all at once. Forever. It's available in all stores near you, provided you know how to ask and you know the secret password. Just wink at the clerk, give him a thumbs up, and say, I'm looking for that sassy sweetness. They'll know what to do. What was this? Hadn't I paid for premium with no ads? I listened on and I found it humorous. I had needed something besides music anyways. You know, it's not very safe for a girl out there alone and on the road. A shiver down my spine. Those familiar words. It's not very safe for a boy out there on the road either. Or a non-binary person for that matter. And it sure as hell ain't that safe for a genderless individual who has transcended their corporeal body. The road is just a plain dangerous place. Wouldn't it be nice to have a little protection out there? Someone looking out for you? will follow tonight's rule of the road if you desire a little more security and reassurance. It's extremely simple. If at any point during your journey you come across a panhandler with a cardboard sign and a dog at his side, toss him a couple bucks. He's been on the road for a long time and his dog is hungry and he is oh so tired. Look closely. Panhandler is tall and imposing. Something is not right about that dog. Why, that dog has its own little coat on and a hood pulled over its head. Isn't that funny? You seem skeptical, and I get that. I know what you're gonna say. You're gonna say, Buck, it's 20 dang 20. Nobody carries cash anymore. I'm lucky if I have 50 cents in my ashtray. Why, just the other day I blew through a toll station and the alarms went off and I thought I was a goner and I pulled off at a long-term parking lot and changed my license plate so they wouldn't find me. I use Venmo and Google Pay and all those other fancy bells and whistles, applications on my smartphone. And to that I say, fair enough. 
you better have some cash on you when you take a long journey. That's just plain old common sense. What if you run into a toll road? What if you find the world's best taco truck and they only accept cash? What if you pull over at a rest stop and they have a soda machine and it's serving Buck's sassy sarsaparilla? All of those things would be a huge inconvenience to be unable to pay for and things you could avoid if you had some scratch on hand. But if you don't have cash or you just straight up ignore the warning, then this is what will happen. Absolutely nothing. Yep, that's right. Nothing will happen. You can just go on your merry little way and have a good old time out there on your journey. But you must remember the road is not a safe place. Wouldn't you like to have a little protection? I know I would. Well, that's all for tonight. I bid you adieu. May the road rise up and meet you and not ask if you've met your Lord and Savior. May it rise up and meet you and not ask if you would like to learn about a brand new and exciting business opportunity. May it simply rise up and meet you and say, sup. Stay alert, stay lively, stay lonely. Once again, I'm Buck Hensley. These are the rules of the road. The monologue shut off instantly and returned to my playlist. I turned it off and I drove silently. The radio program or advertisement or whatever perturbed me a little. I was thinking about emailing Spotify a complaint. Being a premium subscriber and all, I wasn't supposed to receive ads. But besides the annoyance, I didn't like how it had echoed what my brother had said prior to my departure. His very own words. It had to be a coincidence. It was a common sentiment, after all. I got creeped out and paranoid, especially driving on the dark roads through the mountains while the night got later and later. Why had I planned it this way? Why was I in such a rush? I was missing all the pretty mountains by driving through them at night. I should have stayed the night in Fort Collins. I barreled on ahead. I was going to need gas soon, and I figured I could make it to Steamboat Springs. I was 25 miles to empty when I saw the signs for town, and I pulled off towards the first gas station that I saw. It was off the highway behind some trees. The lights were bright and the station looked empty. As I was pulling into the station, I could see a tall figure walking down the sidewalk. He had a dog with him. They both were wearing coats. The figure had a ball cap slung down low over his face. In his other hand, he clutched a piece of cardboard to his side. I pulled next to the pump and looked at the man and his dog. They walked across the parking lot and sat down on a large decorative boulder in a flower bed with the yucca. The dog had a literal hoodie on, and it was pulled over his head. Aside from the four legs and wagging tail, you wouldn't have been able to tell what breed it was. It was a medium-sized dog and the hood seemed to cover a rather large head. I thought of approaching them. I had cash on me. I knew it was important. That was something Buck Kinsley didn't have to tell me. But was I really going to give money to every panhandler I saw with the dog from here on out for the next two months? I pumped my gas, keeping a wary eye on the man and his dog. 
They were about a hundred feet away. I could see the man reach in his backpack and pull something out and feed the dog. Excuse me, miss. I turned around. I hadn't even heard him come up behind me. He was a wiry man with wild eyes and a tattooed tear on his face. His arms were ropes of muscle, dark with sleeves of faded tattoos. Instinctively, I reached for the knife in my pocket. But before I can even do so, there was a blinding flash in my eyes and pain across the bridge of my nose that almost brought me to my knees. I cried out, but that was met with rough and callous hands across my mouth. It tasted dirty and gagged me. I felt cold steel on my throat, and I heard him whisper in my ear as I struggled against him. Don't scream, or I'll slit your fucking throat, bitch. You got that? I nodded. My nose ached, and his hands pressed against it, making it worse. Warm blood and tears ran down my face, over my lips, and into his hand. He gripped my face tightly, reached into my pocket, and got my knife. I like to think that, in the face of such a thing, that I would go down fighting that I would put up more of a contest than I did, that I would escape. Maybe all those victims out there thought the same, but I did nothing like that. I went into a sort of autopilot and in that initial moment, if he had told me to walk off a cliff or into traffic, I probably would have complied. As it was, He told me to get into the trunk of an old-looking sedan, and I did so. I laid in the trunk, claustrophobic panic rising within me. I tried to stay calm. It all had happened so fast. Surely someone had seen this happen. Someone had to have called the cops. The guy with his dog, did he see? My nose was still bleeding, so I pulled the front of my shirt up to put gentle pressure on it. I thought of screaming and kicking the trunk door, but I was afraid to anger my captor and what he would do to silence me if I did. I focused on my breath, and I took stock of my surroundings, feeling with my hands until my eyes adjusted to the dark. There were several objects of smooth plastic with liquid in them, containers of motor oil, or antifreeze. Then there were several metal cylinder cans of some type of spray. One can had a big plastic nozzle in the shape of a trumpet. I couldn't feel anything else, and I was hoping for a tire iron or something else as a makeshift weapon. The warm glow of the street lamps shone in through a rusted out hole in the lid of the trunk while the car's tires hummed on the road. The vehicle slowed, and the texture of the road changed into something crunchy. There was no more illumination. We had left the highway, and we were now going down some back road. The paths were winding, and the car leaned into steep curves while I steadied myself against the trunk walls to keep from rolling around. I feared the worst. We were going out in the wilderness, far from everyone and he was going to have his way with me. I would not let him, and I vowed I would go down fighting. 
Finally, the car stopped. The engine turned off. Silence. Then I could hear his footsteps crunching on the gravel outside. See his shadow cross the holes in the trunk. I rolled onto my stomach, face down, a can of spray in my hands. The trunk creaked open. The hinges bounced. Get out. I didn't answer. Get out. I lie still, playing possum. Get up, get up, get up. He slapped my ass hard. I still didn't move. He kneeled into the trunk, grabbed me by the shoulder, and rolled me over. I saw his face and was ready. Since he had kneeled in to reach me, he was at close range. I hit him directly in the face and eyes with a full blast of wasp spray. He staggered back. I leapt out of the trunk as fast as I could, the metal latch hitting the back of my scalp and then digging into my back, gashing me as I flew. He was rubbing his eyes, coughing and spitting, hunched over. At his belt line was a large sheath with a knife handle sticking out of it. In my frantic rage, I sidestepped him as he gagged and sputtered, gripped the knife handle, yanked backwards. The blade came free, and I hammered it down into the small of his back again and again. I managed three deep stabs in quick successions before he jerked up quickly, swinging his arm backwards, striking me in the face. I held steady while he stumbled and windmilled like a dazed, unskilled boxer. He swung at me again. I had the knife blade up and raked it across his forearm. He screamed and gripped his fresh wound. Seeing that he was distracted for the briefest instant, I swung the blade at his face and other arm, then ran back away from him. He staggered around drunkenly and tried to rush me, but I was too far away and dodged him easily. He whimpered and fell to his knees, then crawled towards his vehicle and collapsed. I stood watching him, panting, I could feel my blood running down my back and head from the gashes I had suffered jumping out of the trunk. Out of nowhere from behind me, a voice spoke. Excuse me, miss. Do you have a couple bucks I could borrow? I almost jumped out of my skin. I whirled around and held out the knife in a defensive posture. My dog and I are starving. We've been on the road a long, long time. It was the man and the dog I had seen at the gas station. He was tall, with a dark complexion, and he looked clean. I looked down at the dog and saw he was still wearing that hoodie. His owner reached down and pulled the hood back. My mind couldn't quite comprehend what I saw. The dog looked like a pit bull mix of some sort. Its fur, a mixture of white and gray. But the remarkable thing about the dog was that it had two separate heads, each one panting with a pink tongue hanging out. I, 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 there was so much going on at once. I had just been kidnapped, had stabbed a guy multiple times, and now a man and his two-headed pit bull were asking me for money? And I didn't even have money on me. It was back at my car. 
I'll make it worth your while. I went over to my bleeding captor, held my knife at him. He was on his stomach, inching towards his car. I stepped on the back of his thigh, and he groaned. In the back pocket of his blue jeans was a bulge of a wallet. I bent over and plucked it out. Here you go. I handed it to the man with the dog. Take as much as you want. He smiled at me. I'll take care of this from here. Your car's at the end of this gravel road. Or did you need anything else? I think I can manage. As I went down the road, I could hear the other man's screams echo behind me. I checked the papers for Steamboat Springs all summer, and there was never any mention of a dead body or vehicle found. My guess is that there was nothing left of the body, and the car simply disappeared. I still see him sometimes as I'm out there, standing on highway exit ramps or outside of gas stations. He always gives me a little wave. I feel like he shows up like this as a reminder for me. The near-death episode hasn't knocked me down. I still have that zest for travel. Do I still travel alone? Yes, but only because I've had a little extra protection ever since that summer night in northern Colorado. They may be right about traveling alone. While I certainly had gotten out of that situation on my own, it could have ended so much differently. I still have the occasional nightmare and flashback and sick feeling when I think back on how I could have been raped and murdered. Take special precautions if you're out there by yourself, no matter who you are. Check in with people frequently and let them know your location. Practice situation awareness and have some means of self-defense. And if you see a panhandler, on the side of the road with his dog? Toss him a couple of bucks. What have you got to lose? You really can't be too careful. Yes, online user feedback. Always helpful, always grounded, coherent, and fair. <laughs> Before I do anything, I check out these bad boys. Some of them really catch your eye. And in this tale, shared with us by author L. Pudney, one woman discovers a series of posts by the same gentleman that cause her to take a closer look. I join Aaron Lillis, Sarah Thomas, Danielle McRae, Graham Rowett, Matthew Bradford, and Kristen D. Mercurio in performing this tale. So let's ignore the age-old adage of never read the comments and take a journey through one man's strange reviews.
I'm not really sure if this is the right place to post this, but I think that it's worth sharing. I've spent the last two days thinking about it, worrying about it, and I just needed to share what I found and hopefully someone might know more about it. It all started when I was looking at reviews on the internet for my local hospital, as I'm going there in a few days for a small procedure. I just wanted to make sure that the doctors there are reliable and good at what they do. Anyway, as I was scrolling through the reviews, I came across one that, for some reason, caught my attention. I've attached the review here, but have changed or removed any names and locations for privacy reasons. Five stars. Staff were very friendly and my procedure was successful. May 14, 2017. I visited the South Hill Community Hospital six weeks ago for a procedure on my eyes. Cataracts, don't you know? The staff there were very kind and looked after my every need before I went into surgery. They made sure that I was comfortable and were clear on what the operation would entail and what to expect afterwards. When it came time for my operation to start, I was taken through by a lovely nurse who made me feel relaxed by talking to me and distracting me from what was going to happen. The same nurse also gently injected the needle I needed to place me under anesthetic. From what I hear, the surgery was very successful, and I awoke feeling a bit groggy. The staff at South Hill attended to my every need. I did have one moment that was a bit scary, though, and maybe my one small complaint about my experience. About an hour after I had woken up from surgery, I suddenly lost all vision, and everything went completely black. I began to panic and scream a bit and I heard one of the staff let out a deep, long laugh, almost like they were laughing at me. I'm overlooking this, though, because of how fantastic the rest of the staff were at calming me down. Luckily, my vision did return after maybe a minute or two, and the doctor said they weren't too sure as to what happened. I don't really care what happened. The main thing is that I could see again. Since then, I've had no trouble with my eyes and I fondly remember my experience of South Hill Community Hospital. The review seemed fairly normal, but I was a bit concerned about the doctor who was laughing at a patient, and so I read the response that the hospital gave to this review, which I've also attached. Hello. Thank you for your kind words about our hospital. We are glad to hear that you had a mostly excellent experience and that your recovery is going well. In regard to the doctor that laughed at you, we have spoken to our staff that were present at that time, and they have all said that no doctor did laugh and that they were all trying their best to help you. We would never allow a doctor to laugh at a patient, and if it does come out that someone did, then the matter will be dealt with accordingly. Best of luck with your recovery. South Hill Community Hospital. 16th of May, 2017. For some reason, I decided to see what other reviews this man had left. I think maybe because of the doctor laughing that the hospital claim didn't happen, I wanted to see if this reviewer had had any other weird experiences elsewhere. This led me down a rabbit hole that I wish I hadn't gone down. The next review of his that I read was for a local restaurant, and I have attached the review and the restaurant's response here. Four stars. I wasn't aware that this was a themed restaurant, but it was a nice surprise. May 21, 2017. I booked a table at 
for me and my brother to go out and enjoy some Italian food. Unfortunately, my brother had to cancel, but I thought that I would make the most of my night and still go out for dinner by myself. The staff that greeted me at the door were very friendly. They showed me to my table and allowed me to choose a glass of wine from a very impressive wine list. I enjoyed my wine and ordered my meal. It didn't take long to arrive, which I was very pleased with. I began eating my puttanesca and it was very delicious. Maybe the best Italian dish I've ever eaten. It was about halfway through my meal when things got a little bit odd. Suddenly, all the lights went off and the restaurant was left in the dark. At first, I thought it was my eyes. <laughs> That's a long story. But I began to see a dark outline of a figure standing in front of me. The figure was quite tall and appeared to have very long fingers with very lengthy nails at the end of them. The figure took a step towards me, lifted up one of those fingers, and pointed its long fingernail towards me. It then let out a loud growling noise. Suddenly, the lights flicked back on, and he was gone. At first, I was shocked as to what had happened, but I soon figured out that this is one of those themed restaurants, and this one must be horror-based. Once I knew that, I began to realize how much I had enjoyed the experience, and I feel it definitely added to my night. My only advice, however, would be to make it clearer that this is horror-themed, as some people might not enjoy it as much as me. Dear thank you for your review, but we are a bit puzzled. We are not a horror-themed restaurant. We're just a small business that specializes in Italian cuisine. At first, after reading your review, I thought maybe you had written the review about a different restaurant and accidentally posted it on our page. I decided to check the security footage, and I think I have managed to spot you or someone that looks a lot like your profile picture. And I can confirm that no lights went out or that anyone was standing in front of you. I did notice your eyes suddenly rolled back into your head, and you sat motionless for around 30 seconds before your eyes returned to normal. You then looked puzzled but continued eating. I hope that everything is okay and that you're alright. Regards, Management. 2-16-2017 I was getting more and more concerned about this reviewer at this point and continued to read his other reviews. I found he had a similar experience elsewhere. The following is a review he posted about a live show he attended. Three stars. The play was fairly good, but the actors got a bit too close for my liking. May 28, 2017. Based on a recent experience at a horror-themed restaurant that gave me a fun fright, I've become interested in finding something else that can give me a bit of a spook. That's when I found that there was this play being performed at the Silverstone Theater. As this is near my house, I thought that I would give it a go. I read some other reviews and learned that it was supposed to be quite scary. This sounded like something I would be interested in. When the play began, I found myself enjoying it quite a bit. It provided a few good scares and a few good laughs. It did get a bit boring during the middle section, but it's the ending that I have the most issue with. I was sitting there watching the play, and during one of the moments that was dark and suspenseful, suddenly one of the actors appeared very close to me. He was only inches away from my face and was staring straight into my eyes. 
His eyes were the only thing I could see. The rest of his face was still in silhouette. But he must have had some contact lenses on because his eyes had a light yellow tinge around the whites and were a dark red in the center. He then began to laugh a deep, raspy laugh, and I could feel his hot, stinking breath against my face. Then, as quickly as he appeared, he disappeared again. I thought that this was a fairly cheap jump scare that for some reason singled me out. I think it's irresponsible of this production to not warn audience members that the actors may appear so close to them. At the time of posting this, there has been no response from the theater or the production company that put on the show. I was equal parts worried and curious. I needed to know more about this man and his strange reviews. I then read his next review, and while it was not as eventful as the previous ones, it was still odd. Two stars. The optometrist didn't even try to help me when I came to him for help. June 6, 2017. I've been having a strange problem with my eyes the past few days, and so I turned to the optimistic optometrist for help. But help is not something he can provide. When I got there, I told him that for the past few days I've had a weird shaking in my eyes. At first he seemed concerned, which is the reason I'm giving you two stars and not one, and he did begin to run a few tests as to why that would be. After trying a couple of things, he quickly dismissed the idea that my eyes were shaking as, quote, being in my head, and he couldn't find any evidence that my eyes were vibrating. He was quick to get me out the door and told me to see a doctor if the problem persists. Well, the problem has persisted. In fact, it's gotten worse. I constantly feel a strong shake from behind my eyes, almost like something is trying to get out. It's gotten to the point where it's almost unbearable, and thanks to you, I wasn't able to find any comfort. There wasn't any reply to this review from any other users or from the optometrist at the time of posting. I was very concerned for this man now. He appears to have a serious issue, and almost every review seems to involve his eyes. The final review I can find from this user is one from a pawn shop. The review and subsequent response from the pawn shop may be the most concerning of them all. One star. Why advertise that you buy any item when you clearly do not? June 8, 2017. I came into your store this morning and tried to sell you an item, but was told to leave and that you would not buy what I had to sell. However, the sign out front of your store reads, We buy any item. This is clearly not true. I told you that I would happily remove the item from its cases if that made it easier, but this is the moment when I was told to leave. I will not be returning to your store, as it appears you are lying in your advertising. Very disappointed. Can you please remove this review? It reflects very badly on my small business to have a bad review, especially when you didn't explain the full story, which is... You came into my store, quite distressed, and began yelling and begging me to take an item from you. You explained that I wouldn't need to buy it, that I could just have it. At first, I thought you were trying to give me an illegal item that you needed to get rid of quickly. This is why I refused at first. But then you continued to explain what the item was. I know the sign in front of the store says that we buy any item, 
But I'm telling you right now, he definitely will not buy your eyes off of you. Even if you do, take them out of their cases, as you said. So again, I would appreciate it if you did remove this review. After reading this, I was desperate to know more. But the reviews ended there. He never wrote another one. I then did a bit of detective work and looked at the Facebook page that was attached to his account and managed to find his brother. I looked up any reviews his brother may have written and found just one. I have attached this review and the response here. Three stars. Overall happy with service, apart from one thing. I recently had to use the services of South Hill Funeral Home for my brother's funeral. This service that they provided was very touching and is what we wanted. More importantly, it is what my brother would have wanted. Nice words were said and the place looked lovely. There were pretty flowers around the chapel. The funeral was open casket as per our request, something that we had been very insistent on and had given the funeral home specific instructions about. This is what my one complaint is about. Given the way my brother died, we asked for his eyes to definitely be closed. That, when I viewed the body, what I saw will always haunt me. It was him lying there with his eyelids opened, and the black holes where his eyes used to be staring up at me. Dear I'm glad to hear that the service was what your brother would have wanted. I am concerned, however, about your complaint. We made sure to follow all of your instructions in regards to preparing the body, and we made sure that his eyes were closed. I do also remember that when I moved his body after the service, his eyes were most definitely firmly closed. I am unsure how they would have been open when you viewed the body, but I profusely apologize for this mistake. Kind regards. Management of South Hill Funeral Home. This review from his brother told me one thing. This man was now dead. I needed to find out more about his death, and so I trawled through the internet, searching for his name, his brother's name, and any of the locations that he wrote reviews for. Eventually, I managed to find one newspaper article from a fairly small local paper that I believe is about this man. I've attached this article here. Local man's death may have been mistakenly ruled a suicide. The coroner's report has just been released for the death of a local man. The man in question was found dead in his own apartment with scratches on his face and both of his eyes removed from his head, lying instead on the floor in front of him. It was originally believed to be a suicide, but the recent coroner's report has raised more questions than it provided answers, based on two key findings in the report. The first is that a small, dark footprint has been found just in front of where the body was discovered. The second finding is that it appears the man may not have removed his own eyes like originally thought, but instead that they were pushed out of his head from the inside. This is all the information I am able to find about this mysterious death. I hope that more information may be uncovered so that there can be some answers, but I doubt it.
In our final tale, we join the team behind Ghost Smoke, a web show that digs up folk legends and broadcasts dramatized recreations. It's all fake, of course, just a little bit of fun. But in this tale, shared with us by author Marcus Demanda, the team makes a misstep when they choose to dramatize an urban legend based around a very real tragedy. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Dan Zapula, Nicole Goodnight, Matthew Bradford, Ellie Hirschman, and Jeff Clement. So remember to keep a line between fact and fiction. Otherwise, you'll be dealing with people like Johnny Blackjack. On Friday, June 11th, 2021, at 2 in the afternoon, I parked the van at 1201 Hayward Cove and peered up at the house at the end of the cul-de-sac. We're here. I checked my watch and scribbled the time into my logbook. The house was a perfectly ordinary, middle-class suburban two-story, bright blue, white shutters, with only one car in the driveway one of the newer Mustangs. I thought at a glance. Not an SUV or anything that might suit your typical soccer mom, your typical family. Manny turned to me from the passenger side. Think so? I don't know, Tara. He sounded worried, almost hedging. If I had my information right... 35 years ago, this house would have been at the end of a street called Lakeview Way, not Hayward Cove. But this was the only cul-de-sac that backed up against the woods, or the only one that did on this end of town anyway. These were the only woods that led, if you walked a mile and a half in a straight line west, to Clearwater Lake. There had to have been a name change. This is it. I pointed, tapping the inside of the windshield. That's the McPatrick's house. He shook his head. If it ever was, ten to one, it isn't now. We'd been through this. He knew this was the right place. What was wrong with him? Here, look again. I reached over my shoulder to the back pocket of the driver's seat and drew from it a true relic of the past. One Virginia Commonwealth Road Atlas, circa 1985. Acquired easily and on the cheap over eBay. I unfolded the massive thing in front of him, right onto his lap, to the wide, double-page spread I dog-eared in advance. I jammed my finger down on it. We're right here, Manny. See? There's the exit, and there's the lake, the woods, and here, right here, Lakeview Way. Wearily, he nodded, rubbing his temples. He folded the atlas closed without looking at it. Fine. Manny, what's the matter with you? Oh, I don't know. He looked past the house to the woods beyond, his words dripping molten sarcasm. Maybe it's the fence. 
Tara? Notice anything funny about that? I hadn't before. We'd only just gotten here. But now I did. The thick, dull, brown wooden planks that defined the ends of backyards in a wide semicircle was easily seven feet high. Looks like it belongs to everyone. There's no break in it anywhere. Oh, Manny, it's perfect. Uh-huh. And no gate. I smiled at him. You can see through houses now? But that's not what bothers me. Not really. Okay, I'm intrigued. Manny was generally pretty enthusiastic about our forays into bogus local mythology. We're talking about four kids who went missing in those woods. Not half a mile from their homes. Four kids who were real. Four kids that another kid claimed were murdered. That's no fucking joke. I don't feel right about playing the trick this time. I don't feel right fishing for subscriptions with this. The trick involved digging up some impossible-to-believe semi-modern folklore from this little town or that one. They were all bullshit, of course, and it was the stock and trade of several in our admittedly niche industry to either investigate or debunk such tales. What Manny and I did was quite different. We took the superstitions, or the lies, of others and deliberately made them look real. To avoid the inevitable lawsuit, or worse, we weren't even coy about it. Fiction was our final product, and it was right out in the open. The name of our show, Ghost Smoke, was a confession unto itself. Might as well have called it Ghost Smoke and Mirrors. People watched anyway. Grainy footage shot on cheap cameras, carefully spliced interviews, a few strategic special effects edited in during post-production, and some clever casting for other interviews we weren't actually able to get, never failed to complete the trick. We had our detractors. Hell, we were reviled by thousands who called us out in the comments section all the time as though we hadn't already called out ourselves. We'd been branded as callous, heartless, and generally in bad taste by probably half the people who knew the show. And we made money. Quite a lot of it. To me, today's expedition seemed harmless. Mostly because the kid who'd reported the others as murdered was now dead, too. Long dead. Only the phantom he had given birth to in his mind still lived and only in the minds of those few who believed. Manny opened the glove box, but instead of the special zoom lens for his on-the-move digital camcorder, he retrieved his cigarettes. Shook one out with a tremulous hand. Manny, don't. He wouldn't look at me. He lit his smoke. What if it's real, Tara? I humphed at him, gave his shoulder a playful push. If it's real, so what? Let's just see who's home. Then I coughed into my hand, <clears throat> a gesture that was only half affected. 
he didn't answer. Come with? Standard camera ambush when the door opens? Not this time, Tara. You go. See who's home. If they'll talk, we can bring in the real gear then. I guess. And what will you do in the meantime? <sighs> Long shot of the fence from the side behind the houses. See if I'm right. About? If there really is no gate, then the people who live here don't want anyone going into those woods from that direction. Like, ever. They don't even trust themselves. Sure. I thought, like, people couldn't just break through it or go around. But... Cool. I said, pocketing the keys and stepping out onto the curb. Good a start as any. It had begun, like many of our productions, with a single line in the comments section of our most recent episode. Sender tagged Zach Black. You should check out the flashlight tag killer. Interesting. I opened a second window on my laptop to run a quick search. But I got nothing. I answered back. Thanks for the tip. I thought that would be the end of it. Zach Black. Your show is stupid and fake. Do something real. I frowned at the screen. This was obviously a kid. We had no subscribers under that signature, as I noted with a few quick investigative clicks. And a pissy, petulant internet troll at that. I hated taking the bait, especially where others could see. But when his comments started getting hits on the like button, I couldn't help myself. Isn't it past your bedtime? Please tell me your homework's done. Zach Black. Do yours. Yep, I was sure of it. It was nine o'clock on a Friday night, and I was playing a game of gratuitous assertion with a 12-year-old. And, to make matters worse, other comments started coming in, both under my post and under his. Janet, our daytime moderator, would kill this conversation as soon as she saw it, but by then, this exchange might actually detract from discussions about the month's actual episode. I made an executive decision and deleted the conversation myself. But, in the moment before I did, I right-clicked his name to open the message window. With the window still open, I cleaned up the comments then texted him privately. Do you actually know something? No answer, of course. I considered blocking him to keep him off our channel, but I didn't. I waited. It wasn't until I had my coffee in front of me on Saturday morning that I saw his eventual answer. 
Clearwater, Virginia, 1986. Johnny Blackjack. Look hard. Look under. Everything on the surface is lies. Johnny Blackjack? <laughs> what a laugh. Jack Blackjack? Please. But what the kid had said after... No kid talked like that. That was two weeks ago. I'd done the research, planned out the whole excursion by the hour. I'd chosen the day with care. In Clearwater, Virginia, June 11th was not only the 35th anniversary of the disappearances, but also the last day of school. At two in the afternoon, middle and elementary school kids wouldn't be home yet. Neither Manny nor I especially liked dealing with kids, and the show logo on the side of our van had a way of drawing them to us like we were driving the freaking ice cream truck. But I wouldn't mind if Mr. McPatrick saw it. In 1986, he'd been a 48-year-old widower with both of his kids in college. Maybe he'd mistake me for real TV. He might, that is, if Manny, with his cheap handheld camcorder, could move his paranoid ass down the sidewalk and out of sight a bit quicker. I waited for him to do so, checking the homes to the right and left. The one to the right, I thought, might have been the home of Stevie Patterson. If so, that wide front porch step would have been an ideal launching pad for five kids to start a game of flashlight tag. But there were no cars in the driveway, no lights on inside. And there, weird, I hadn't seen it before, right in the middle of the front yard was a bright yellow for sale by owner sign with black lettering. I turned back to look up the long driveway to the McPatrick's house, behind which four 11-year-old boys had hidden in the forest after Zachary Blake, age eight, had been chosen to be it. But the voices, when I heard them, came from the house to the left. Kids, a small pack of them chanting the ritual together. There was a porch there, too, though not as wide and with only one step. But no kids. And as quickly as I'd looked that way, the voices stopped, or dissipated, like wind-scattered leaves. Damn, I thought, making myself breathe. Before I could overthink it, I did the practical thing and set my phone to record, audio only. Then I slipped it into the inside pocket of my vest. You should have caught that, Tara. You could have... What? Checked it after? Nothing would have picked it up. I'd gotten caught up in the moment. The story. I'd imagined those voices. No way was I ever going to let Manny know. 
He's acting weird enough as it is. But to my right, the for sale by owner sign was gone. And there was a bright red Tesla in the driveway. I jogged up the driveway, made a cursory check of the glass on either side of the front door for no soliciting signs. Not that it would have mattered. I wasn't selling anything, per se. Still, best to know what I was getting into. I knocked. Waited. He'd be 83 years old now. I reminded myself. Give him time. I knocked again. And again, off to my left from across the yard. The voice of a child rising over the voices of other children. And laughter, fading to nothing as soon as I turned my head. Tara, go. Girl, this is legit fucked up. This isn't what you do. But then the intercom just over the doorbell crackled to life. I blinked, returned my attention to the here and now. Mr. McPatrick? I summoned my go-to innocent inquisitive tone out of habit. Hello? No, who are you? Tara Anders. I said, somehow relieved and crestfallen at once. I'm sorry. I was hoping for a word with Mr. McPatrick. I'm the host of a show called... Yes, Miss Anders. I can see your wheels from here. Does Mr. McPatrick know you? I glanced again at the glass that framed either side of the door. I didn't see anyone. Are you his daughter? His granddaughter, Clarissa? No, I don't actually know Mr. McPatrick, but... He won't see you, Miss Anders. I turned my head down, studied my feet then turned my head back up. He's still here, then. Miss, maybe you could just ask him? I mean, I'm sure Mr. McPatrick can speak for... The car was hers. Of course. If she wasn't a member of Mr. McPatrick's family, she'd be... Miss Anders, it's my job to look after Mr. McPatrick. I know his wishes. You ain't the first nosy bitch to come prowling around here. I suggest you leave. I let it run off me. Nothing personal. I reminded myself. Then, from far away, another child's voice, younger than the others. Ready or not, here I come. Zachary. I thought. That's Zachary Blake. One question. I shouted into the intercom before I could stop myself. Just for you, miss, please. I won't bother Mr. McPatrick. Just one question. I promise. Yes, Miss Anders, I do. I hear them all the time.
I slumped into the driver's seat, pulled the door closed, drew out my phone, hit the stop button, then the play arrow. At three minutes and 30 seconds, I heard it again. It was buried under white noise, muffled from having been tucked away in my pocket, but also unmistakably there. I let the recording run through the first half of my unsatisfactory door interview, staring at my phone as though by doing so I might actually see something. At the five minute forty mark, the younger voice. Ready or not, here I come. What if it's real? Manny had asked. The passenger side door opened, making my whole body jerk against the seatbelt. I clutched at my chest. God damn, Manny. Sorry. He didn't really sound sorry. He climbed in and handed me the camcorder. The viewfinder was already on playback. Through it, I watched the point of view shot pan up to a street sign showing the intersection of Hayward and Chestnut. That's good. Chestnut Street, where Zachary lived. Nice touch. It then panned down to show the fence, which ran the entire length of backyards that bordered the forest without a single opening. Told you so. This is too weird, Tara. I don't like it. The people who live here don't like it. People live with superstition all over the world, my friend. I said, still studying the footage. Then, before I could talk myself out of it... You see any kids back there? He shook his head. You're seeing all of what I saw. Why? I gave him back his camcorder. Started the audio playback on my phone again. Held up my hand to shush him when it drew near to the three minute mark. At three and a half, there it was again. The voice of the older child. Could have been Stevie, or Lars, or Brent, or Finley. Just not Zachary. But the voice was even quieter this time, harder to make out, as though that part of the audio, just that one voice, nothing else, had somehow degraded over the last five minutes, as if that were even possible with a digital recording. It wasn't like I'd used a tape recorder. If this were 1986, that's exactly what I would have used. Manny tried to butt in again. I showed him my hand, and he desisted. By all I'd heard from people who believe in this sort of thing, it takes effort for the dead to project into the living world. They fade in and out. We waited for the next snippet. Zachary's voice was suddenly faint, clipped, and incomplete. 
Terra. You didn't see any kids either, did you? One question. I tapped stop. Looked at my phone instead of at him. No. That's it. We're giving this one over to Han Hunters or Trish and Chris at Truth or Scare. They got all the EVP readers and... I don't know. All that Karen Larinaga spook detector stuff. We take a finder's fee. Oh, sure. Why don't we give them an interview, too? Tell them how we chickened out. Make them famous. They're the ones who actually handle cases like this. We're entertainers. Don't get me wrong. We're very good at it. It's a valuable service and all that. Uh, but we're bullshit. This is the real fucking deal. Manny. What? He glared at me like I'd lost my mind. The Aquaquan Inn is 15 miles up the road, you know. The place we were supposed to go before this happened? They welcome hacks like us. They fucking sell their so-called hauntings. I nodded, striving for patience. The Indian ghost who slept with the tavern keeper's wife and the English gentleman who stacks quarters and dimes outside of the cash register. Right. And it's an inn, Tara. A place to sleep. Have a bite to eat. I put my phone away. I'll take you there myself. You'll get us a room, unload the high-end gear, see what you can find, do the groundwork. I'll join you tomorrow morning. His eyebrows arched. You want me to talk to them? That's what you do. You'll be fine. Just leave the crappy camcorder with me. I can't walk away from this one. Why not? Because this one called to me, Manny. Not haunt hunters, not truth or scare. Me. Manny didn't answer that. Someone on the other side wants to be heard. The initial Google search didn't turn up anything on Johnny Blackjack or the flashlight tag murders. I did locate some basic information on the missing kids, including their names and the date of their so-called disappearance. Within a year, apparently, three of the four families had moved away to places unknown. No explanation. That's unlikely. I couldn't help but think. Why would they do that if their kids were still missing? That had been Sunday, the day after my last correspondence from Zach Black. The information had come from the Clearwater Chronicle, an old newspaper no longer in circulation. Subscribing to the bigger parent paper from the city had granted me access to their entire backlog, minus the dates June 12, 1986 to June 24, 1986. It was a complete whitewash obvious to anyone who went looking. Probably impossible to pull off had this happened in a bigger town. Impossible even for Clearwater, had it but taken place during the age of the internet. People talked now. Look hard. 
look under. Well, fuck me, I'd said to myself, resigned, and started opening up discussion boards. On June 5th, 2006, the following post appeared on the Urban Legends of Northern Virginia message board. Johnny Blackjack always comes back. It was only a heading with no story to follow, no explanation of any kind. The first responses were every bit as bemused and perplexed as one might expect. Example, from Ghostbuster 2K, Okay, that's cryptic as fuck. But then, after scrolling way down to the 11th of June, from Final Girl 101, it's the old story from Clearwater about the flashlight tag murders. The one kid they found said some phantom called Johnny Blackjack killed the others. It was all over the news, until it wasn't. The kid, Zachary something, got institutionalized, and they scrubbed the story. From Ghostbuster 2K. They scrubbed the story. Always they. The great, mysterious, mythical they. From Final Girl 101. They never found his friends. The papers printed what really happened the morning after. Zachary's story. It was right out there for a while, until it wasn't. Everyone in Clearwater knows what Johnny Blackjack did to those poor boys. From Ghostbuster 2K. And what is that? From Final Girl 101. He tore them apart. From Ghostbuster 2K. With what? He'd need a chainsaw. From Final Girl 101. His hands. I reopened the old conversation and messaged Zach Black again. You there? I didn't expect he would answer right away. He'd sure taken his time after I'd originally reached out to him on Friday. On this occasion, however, he responded immediately. I'm here. Have you finished your homework? I shrugged, then typed. Still working on it. Who are you? What's your name? Your real one. Zachary Blake. It was a few seconds before I realized I was covering my mouth with my hand. This was too wild. This was going to be the best show in the history of Ghost Smoke. I typed... If you're Zachary Blake, you're dead. I'm dead, but I'm not crazy. 
I was never crazy. I took a video screenshot with my phone, then scrolled back up to the start of the conversation. Then back down. Phone shots of computer screens were hardly professional quality, but they worked just fine for the product I peddled. I typed, Who is Johnny Blackjack? He was the monster of Clearwater Woods. That's all. Again, I held my phone to the screen. Oh, this was good. This was so good. And Zachary wasn't done. Come to the neighborhood. Look around. And then, minutes later, I have something to show you. Now, here I was, standing alone at the intersection of Chestnut Street and Hayward Cove at 8 p.m., right where the fence without a gate ended. The woods were black. The overhead canopy of intertwining tree branches was impenetrable. The camcorder, cheap as it was, had a light attachment. That flash drive could hold about an hour and a half of video, and I figured I'd be in and out of those woods in 30 minutes. I didn't need to go far in. The lost kids from 1986 wouldn't have ventured in far for a game of flashlight tag. You're hesitating, I thought. Go in, shoot as much random shit as you can, get your foundation, and edit in some spooky shit later. Get it over with. On Chestnut Street, shadows moved behind drawn curtains. A few cars still pulled up into driveways from work. Even saw one guy taking out the trash. But no one took any notice of me. I had the distinct impression that I, a stranger in a media van, was being deliberately ignored. The houses on Hayward Cove, by contrast, were dark. There might not have been a single person living in the entire cul-de-sac for all I could see. But I knew better. Fucking creepy. You survived the night, Zachary. So how did you die later? Why did you die? The voice that answered came from behind me, above me, everywhere but in front of me. I couldn't kill him, so I killed myself. I caught my breath, whirled, turned a full 360. There was nothing there. Fuck. I turned the camcorder on. Late again, Tara. Smooth city. My hands shook. It took me five solid seconds to get the stupid thing on record. But I managed a few words of my own. We've got some blanks to fill in here, Zach. Help me out. He didn't answer. 
he was no longer there. Instead, he and four other boys stood in a ring on the front porch of the house to the left of the McPatricks. All five were dressed in black. Made sense for a game of flashlight tag. But Zachary was easy to pick out. He was shorter than the others, his wide eyes studying the five closed fists, including his own, that met at the center of their circle as one of the older boys tapped them one at a time in turn with his free hand. see them I thought raising the camcorder pointing it they're here holy god just look at them the final tap put one of the older ones outside of the circle he stepped back grinning buck teeth Of all of them, Zack was the only one who looked nervous. Was no one else seeing this? Keeping the camcorder trained on the potato game, I quickly looked around. The cul-de-sac was alive with house lights. The driveways had cars in them, mostly from the 70s and early 80s. The corner street sign read, Lakeview Way. Suddenly, three of the kids were running. The potato game had ended. And I knew, without knowing how, that the dark-haired boy who'd tapped out the count was Lars. I was sure of it. He led the way, buck-toothed Brent and fair-haired Finley following after, all of them cackling with merriment and triumph. I watched them cross over the Patterson's front yard and run around the back of the McPatrick's house. From where I stood, I would have seen them run straight through the fence. Only, it was no longer there. They disappeared into the impenetrable shadow of the Clearwater Woods. Odd, but now I could see myself, too, as though from a distance standing stone still with the camcorder in hand. I could see through myself, as though I only had a weak toehold in this reality, one that was slipping fast as the distance between me and myself continued to grow, to lengthen, to stretch. Another voice, gaining clarity and volume by the second, spoke to me as though I were in the game. It was Stevie Patterson, passing a flashlight into my hands. When I run, start counting. Get to 60, then come after us. I nodded. The boundaries are the woods behind the McPatrick's and the porch here. The porch is base. I could feel the weight of the flashlight in my hand. I saw sneakers on my feet. I was wearing a light black windbreaker over my white t-shirt even though it was almost the middle of June and the air was thick. I was Zachary Blake. And I was it. You know what to say when you get the light on someone, right? Yeah. I wondered at the change in my voice. 
but it was the truth. I knew everything that Zachary knew. Good. See ya. And Stevie took off. The potato game had been rigged. I was sure of it. I counted. I was up to twenty when Stevie rounded the corner of the McPatrick's house, straight into the woods like the rest of them. I'd never find them there. I'd go in, maybe lose my way, and they'd come out the other side of the house and make it back to base before I knew it. Twenty-five? Twenty-six? There was no rain that night. But thunder muttered behind black clouds like a grumbling god. Strange. No matter how many times I replay this episode in my mind, it's like I've locked myself out of it. There is only the true history of that night. Only Zachary. And it's in his voice, not mine, that I remember the events as he remembers them. Even though he's dead. When I told myself, catch them. Just one. I can catch just one. At 35, I grew tired of counting. I switched on the flashlight, turned to face the woods, and held the beam under my chin as I shouted into the night. Ready or not, here I come! My voice, though it belonged to a child, rang strong in my ears. My heart swelled with determination. I bounded off the porch and set after them. They went that way. And I stopped, turned off the light. They'd expect me to follow them right over Mr. McPatrick's yard, tracing their exact path. No good. A kid could get into those woods from anywhere. I doubled back, went around the far side of Stevie's house instead, where the backyard rose and provided me some extra cover. A chance to catch at least one of them unawares. Heck, they might come running this way, might run right into me. Ahead, atop the rise, the trees were black towers with a thousand interlaced black arms. I slowed, staring up at them. Nothing to be afraid of, I thought. These are the same trees as in the daytime. Been in here a thousand times. I went in, leaving the light off. The darkness of the woods engulfed me. But then the sky flashed, a shuddering pulse that soon died away. Dim thunder followed, but I hardly noticed. In that moment, I thought I saw a shadow high up in the trees, like a man in a long jacket swinging from branch to branch first by one hand, then by another, and then... I screamed, 
probably giving myself away. And, yep, sure enough, I could hear them laughing. One of them, anyway. Sounded like Lars. But that shadow, that thing, had been swinging tree to tree, not only with his hands, but with his tongue. It had reached right out of his head like he was a freaking lizard or something. Just seeing things. Don't be a pussy. I wanted to quit and go home, watch TV, anything. Most of all, I wanted out of the woods. The once familiar forest had become a misty black labyrinth thick with evil. And somehow... I was already deep in them, the house lights behind me far away. But I had a thing to do. So I crept forward, tightening my grip on the flashlight. Another flash lit up a small but steep hill right in front of me. The trees grew less thickly here. I started up it right away. I had to scramble part of the way, using my hands almost as much as my feet. The earth was soft from yesterday's rain. I felt the dirt that was almost mud cake my hands, squelching over the flashlight. My pants and jacket cuffs were right in it. Oh, Mom was going to be pissed. I kept going. Make the catch and make it quick. I told myself. This is where the laughing came from. You didn't hear anyone leave. Then, just as I drew near to the top, something amazing happened. One of the hiders stood up and tried to run for it. In the darkness, I heard more than saw this happen. Whoever it was, he was only feet away, running recklessly fast. I held up the flashlight and clicked it on. Pointed. And unable to believe my luck. One, two, three. I see Lars. But Lars kept going until he passed over the hill and out of my sight. I heard him fall, then yelp in surprise or pain. Served him right. More noise, then more yelps, but muffled like he was holding his hand over his mouth to keep quiet. Come on, Lars, you're it. I half expected him to be dumb enough to get up and argue the point. Instead, scuffling from the other side of the hill. Son of a bitch, he's running away. This, as Mom would have said, was out of control. If Stevie had been it, Lars wouldn't be pulling this shenanigan. Ollie, Ollie, income free. I got Lars Baron Square. Come on! No one answered. I kicked a tree in frustration and went after him, finishing the ascent and then proceeding down the other side of the hill. The scuffling sounds had stopped. 
Lars must have found a new hiding place. Reluctantly, I switched off the light. I wanted to nail him point blank. I couldn't see or hear anything now, but a sudden stink rose up in front of me, somehow rotten and sweet at once, like school lunches, only worse. Much worse. I burst into a run, waving the flashlight without really using it, terrified without knowing why. Then I tripped, my shoelaces getting snagged on a rock or a tree root or something, and spilled out face first, stomach flat, into a thick, nasty pool of what I hoped was only mud. Oh my god. The stink. The stink. I... Oh, no. I just fell into a pile of shit. Whatever it was, the flashlight was completely covered in it, and the stench was so strong I could only have landed in its source. Frantically, I stood back up and promptly slid right back down into it. My open mouth took some of it in, and I spit it back out, groaning, crying not caring that I was crying. Then, something reached out of the darkness. It was like a hand, I guess, but the flesh felt funny, in motion, thudding in time with the low thunder like the blood that pumped through it was ready to storm as well. But it helped me to my feet. It kept hold, and now it felt right. An adult hand, big and responsible. It released me, reached down into the gunk, and came back up with the flashlight. It wiped the lens clean. It gave me my flashlight back. I recognized the shadow from the trees, the shape of his jacket, which was more like a trench coat. The light shone first at his waist where one of his hands, the one that had helped me up and cleaned the flashlight lens, was normal. But the other one was like a meat hook made flesh. The end of it, one long monstrous black fingernail that glittered and dripped. I couldn't speak. My breathing picked up. My eyes couldn't stop staring at that hand. But then he shook it, like it had gone prickly with sleep needles. And now that hand was normal too. He flexed the fingers open and closed. Hmm. Hello, Zack. I shone the light up, hoping to see his face. His thick black trench coat glistened with the same filth I'd fallen into. His face was nothing more than a hole in the sky. An empty space staring down at me. Until he leaned forward. Then a face came into view, long and narrow, with black hair that fell over his shoulders. His eyes, too, were black end to end, like he'd shoved lumps of wet coal into his sockets and could somehow see with them. Got to go. 
but I'll be back. Johnny Blackjack always comes back. Another rumble of thunder, and he was gone. For a second, his whole body flickered with a dull red flame, then burned out and disappeared into the night like a swarm of fireflies. His jacket fluttered, twisting in and shrinking on itself until it vanished with a small pop. I turned the flashlight on myself and screamed. I was covered in blood, standing in a pile of shredded meat that had once been Lars. The body was so torn up and twisted that it did not even remotely resemble its original shape. But the head, ripped clean off the shoulders and crammed into the hollowed out rib cage, was recognizable. One of his hands had been broken off and shoved stump-first into his mouth, like he was throwing up fingers. The middle two were jammed up his nose to the knuckles. Long, twiggy sticks stuck out from his eye holes, his hair glued up into a mohawk with his own gore. It's not real, I tried to tell myself. Not real. Can't be. Wrong answer. I stumbled out of the bushes, first puking, then dry retching on my knees long after my stomach was empty. After that, for what seemed like a dangerously long time, all I could do was cry. That wasn't just some kind of an awful, monstrous prank back there prank like that would have been impossible. No. Lars had been ripped apart like a bad report card. And now he was all over me. He was on my clothes, between my fingers, in my hair. His death was in my fucking mouth. But when the sickness subsided, terror sat in. Lars hadn't just died. Someone had torn him to pieces and put him back together wrong. Like those funny pieces of art I didn't understand at the museum. I got on my feet and ran, the flashlight bobbing unheeded in my hand. I slammed into trees and pinballed off of them, charging through brambles and thorn bushes that might as well not have been there. I didn't think about where I was going. More screams, different screams, and laughter. I couldn't tell if I was hearing it or remembering it or if my mind was just making up noises and throwing them around between my ears. But it was the shadow's laughter. The killer's laughter. It was inescapable. I had to stop. I'd run myself out of breath. I was dizzy and I hurt everywhere. 
Also, the need to sit down and cry again rippled through me in shudders and waves. Where am I? Oh man, I don't want to be lost. I passed a shaking arm across my eyes, turned circles, used the flashlight. The trees were so close here, denser than the rim of the woods we'd begun the game in. Oh, yeah, right. That made a lot of sense. My teeth chattered. I was sure I was a total mess, and I was wearing that terrible stink. School lunches. God help me, please. I moved the flashlight slower this time, hoping to catch sight of something familiar, anything fighting the urge to lie down, close my eyes, and hope for the best. The flashlight settled over Finley and Brent. They'd been propped up in a sitting position against an oak tree. Must have passed the light over their heads the first time. I wailed in disbelief. The shadow had disemboweled them then decorated the lower branches with their guts, hanging them in shiny, wet ribbons that dribbled blood onto the forest floor, which puckered up in little mounds like anthills and drank it. Their arms were about each other's shoulders, their heads tilted together, pals to the end. Finley's mouth was open. A fly buzzed out of it, hovered for a second or two as though unsure of itself, and then went back in. The world swayed. My brain felt as though it was turning circles inside my skull. I'm fainting, I thought. Oh, good, yeah. But I didn't faint, and the world started to clear. Well, this game is totally shot. That thought got me giggling, and that brought the tears again. I latched onto a tree, trying to stay up to gather myself. The crying was violent now. I was convulsing and gasping in it. Surely it would never stop. No way. Not after this. I summoned the strength to yell. Stevie! When that got me nothing, I added volume. Stevie! What? Are you giving up already, you pansy? I didn't answer. I bolted in the direction of that voice fast as I had ever run in my life. Yet it felt like slow motion, like running in a dream. Everything was unreal now. Television through a black and red lens, scrambled nonsense. Until Stevie caught me with both hands before I could whiz past him. I dropped the flashlight, letting it lie at my feet. Well? I wheeled around, 
blinking and breathless, unable to talk. Zach? Z- Zach, what is it? Stevie? Oh, St- Stevie, Lars, he's Finley, Brent. But after that, I couldn't get out anything that he would understand. It was all mashed together in my mind, too much to say. Words kept coming, but I knew they didn't make any sense. Wait, what? Zach, what the fuck? Dead! I finally blurted and pretty much fell on him, wrapping my arms around him and holding on as tight as I could. I could feel blood seeping off of myself and into Stevie's jacket. It got me laughing again. Mr. and Mrs. Patterson were going to be seriously unthrilled with that. No, no, they're not dead, Zach. Stevie patted my back, but his voice suffered from a notable lack of confidence. Come on, they can't be dead. They're murdered. But that only made him mad. Oh, right. Stevie pushed me out of his arms. He reached down and scooped up the flashlight, but he did not raise it. He let it hang and didn't look at it. His hands shook with it. This is Clearwater, Jack, not Detroit. People don't get murdered here. Doesn't matter. I replied, somehow calming myself. He had to see. Had to know. Yes, it does. Stevie was pretty hysterical himself. He grabbed my arm and yanked it. Come on, Wimp, I'll show you. He froze. Someone was coming. The approach was almost inaudible, but we both heard it. The footfalls were steady, rhythmic, a pulse, a faint thunder in the earth. Maybe we felt it too. I think I did. The sound grew, and eventually the shadow became visible, or everything inside of it at least became invisible. Then drew close. Then closer. I don't know why Stevie let me go, and I sure as hell can't explain why he walked up to that thing. His fingers thrumming the blood-smeared flashlight handle like he wanted to put a dent in the monster's face. He shone the full light on it. I would have stopped him if I could. But just as Stevie seemed to be drawn to the blank space in the woods, the black hole that smelled like death and made the ground grumble and breathe, I found myself unable to move. Maybe it's just that I knew more than Stevie did. Knew enough to be afraid of it. Under light, it became the man-thing again. The thing that called himself Johnny Blackjack. But his trench coat was clean, and he had black gloves on his hands and sunglasses covered his eyes. Black boots pointed out from under the cuffs of his jeans, and his belt had a silver buckle on it. There was no blood on him anywhere. Stevie looked back at me, then back at the Shadow Man, 
who put a hand under Stevie's chin and smiled. It's all right. A second passed. Then two seconds. And Stevie returned the smile. The shadow man patted the top of Stevie's head and took the flashlight. I didn't move. Neither did Stevie. Neither did the shadow. The forest was a photograph. Then, the shadow abruptly smashed the flashlight over Stevie's head. Stevie went down, saying nothing. And for some reason, the shadow was staring at me when he said, You're it. The flashlight went out. I put my hands to the sides of my face and moaned quite mindlessly. All that mattered was the sound of my own voice. The terror wouldn't let me run. It shackled me to where I stood, even as the shadow came to me. There was light. Silver and crimson light. It came from the shadow, but it encompassed us both. The shadow knelt and took off his sunglasses. Our eyes locked, and at once, all of the emotion inside of me died. The eyes of the shadow were no longer lumps of coal. They were gemstones that shone in the dark purple and black like the sky. Within those eyes, there existed no reason for fear. They were serene. Nothing bad or out of place could survive in those eyes. All was in order and according to plan. Nothing was wrong. Nothing would ever be wrong again. The voice was deep and parental. It could be trusted. It was safe. The shadow reached into his coat pocket and withdrew something metal. I looked and a stiletto flashed. A thin, wicked blade sprung from the hilt. You and I are going to be friends, Zack. Best friends in your dreams. Tell me, what's my name? I opened my mouth to answer, but nothing came out. The shadow cupped my face with his left hand, the one that had looked like a meat hook earlier, not the hand with the knife. What's my name? Johnny. Call me Blackjack, won't you? I nodded. Made sense. He was a grown-up. 
kids called grown-ups by last names, not first names. The stiletto flashed. He looked over to Stevie, who crawled inch by agonizing inch back toward the discarded flashlight. My goodness. He caught Stevie by the sneaker and hauled him back into play. Isn't this dramatic? Oh man, oh shit, let me go, mister. Blackjack stood up and used the heel of his boot to push Stevie onto his back. Stevie gazed up at him, dazed, myopic, hardly conscious, until his eyes suddenly fixed on the knife, which Blackjack switched over to his right hand. Oh, please, mister, let me go. I won't tell anyone. Blackjack opened Stevie's jacket and pulled up his shirt. <laughs> no. You won't. I watched with perfect calm. I knew what was happening, but it didn't matter. Nothing did. But you will. Blackjack winked back at me over his shoulder. You'll try to, anyway. Who will believe you, I wonder? Stevie's screams were weak, but heartfelt. Your mother? Blackjack drove the knife down into Stevie's stomach without even looking at him. He drove the knife down again and again and again until Stevie was choking on his own blood. No, I don't think so, Zack. Wherever I walk, the ground eats the dead. No one will believe you. Stevie tried to sit up, but with a quick dismissive push to his forehead, he went back down, turned his head to the side, drooling blood, eyes wide. And there, his eyes seemed to freeze in place, blind dead. I studied my hands, my jacket, the shirt underneath. They were clean. Blackjack returned his attention to Stevie. I heard him cutting more, but not stabbing him. There were small sawing noises, sounds of insides being picked up and set aside. He tossed a bright red chunk of meat my way. I didn't catch it. It landed at my feet. It was Stevie's heart, or so I guessed. 
wasn't like it was still beating. Johnny Blackjack's image flickered like a TV losing its signal. It's late. You should go home. He pointed with the bloody knife. That way. Quick. Or you'll be in trouble. He laughed long and merrily, stalking off deeper into the woods and left me in the dark. Johnny Blackjack took his own light with him. He never left any of it behind. I ran without screaming, without getting sick again or crying. I had none of those things left. All I had was a direction, the one Blackjack had pointed me in. I'll kill you. I whispered to him in my mind, wondering if he could somehow hear my words like an unspoken prayer. Just you wait. One day, I'll kill you. But I knew, even as I ran in the dark through the trees, bouncing off a few more as I tore through them, that I couldn't. I was only eight. I was small. And I wasn't magical. There was no stench of death left where Finley and Brent had been propped up and gutted. No mess left on the ground to fall into where Lars had been slaughtered. The ground had eaten them. I could still hear it, however faintly, crunching down the last of their bones, slurping up the last of their blood. House lights right ahead of me. The McPatrick's house. Stevie's house. Lights growing larger, growing brighter. It's the last thing I remember of that night. In the morning, I'd wake up somewhere else, and I wouldn't come home for years. And Blackjack was right. No one would believe me. Why should they? There was a kidnapper to catch, they said. Maybe a killer, but maybe not. Can you see through the dark, Tara? Can you see to the truth? Do you believe me? found the camera again in my hands. It was running, still on record, but the battery was low. And I was right at the end, or the beginning, of the clear water woods. I'd practically run into the fence. What the hell? <laughs> Laughter in my mind but not the low, predatory laughter I had heard in those woods when I'd been Zachary Blake. It was the knowing laughter of a battered child's soul, one who had made his point, but taken no pleasure in it. I started off, walking the length of the fence until I reached its end near the corner of Hayward and Chestnut, 
There was the van, the other houses, the occasional passing car, 21st century cars, all normal, all safe. The final battery bar on the camcorder was blinking. I turned it off, checked myself. My vest and my shirt were torn. There was a hole just over the right knee of my brand new French jeans, blue and white stitching smeared with blood. Scratches on my arms. At what point had I actually gone into the woods? When I checked the footage, what would I find there? Half an hour to an hour of dark, unwatchable, stumbling through the woods Blair Witch bullshit, probably. It was still the first answer that came to mind. Manny and I could work with that, turn it into something, give it a nice, well-packaged, wholly manufactured payoff that people would love. But now, I wasn't so sure. No, Tara. You've got it. I made sure you got it. And I've got a good reason for letting you keep it. It was Zachary Blake again. Or maybe it was. Either that or I'd lost my mind. I asked myself which was easier to believe. That I'd been caught up in my own enthusiasm for a story? Goaded on by a clever little internet troll to the point of pure hysteria? Or that I'd been possessed by the ghost of a teenager dead from suicide, who'd witnessed the massacre of four other boys when he was only eight years old. I turned from the street, from the real world, and looked back into the pitch black of the woods. And there I saw him, one last time, but not in any way I can explain. I knew just exactly where he was, but I can't describe him closest I can come, and it's not really very close, would be to say that he was like colors, or flashes of light behind closed eyelids. There, and not there. What? What reason? You don't tell the truth. You should. You should shine a light, even when it's scary. Even when it's... Unspeakable? That's right. You shouldn't tell lies. Tell them the truth. Tell them I wasn't crazy. Them. I thought... The mysterious, mythical them. And you think they'll believe me? What happens if they don't? Nothing. What about Johnny Blackjack? Is he still out there? Zachary? But he didn't answer. That was the last I heard from him. The last time I saw him. As of today, anyway.
Sounds like the end. Manny slid into the passenger seat. If it's freaking real, I don't want to know. Look, Tara, I've got it all set up right here, just like you said. Come on. It's going to be a great show. And the people who work here, all in, Tara. They think it's real. I looked past him, through the passenger side window, to the concrete steps that led up to the double front doors of the Akaquan Inn. I smiled at him. We should, then. Maybe give them a chance. Let them make their case and not doctor it up. Get some of that EVP spook detector shit, like you said yesterday. He shook his head at me. He looked like he thought I'd... gone crazy? Tell you what, Manny. I took his hand and squeezed it. I haven't watched this footage yet. Let's go up to your room here, watch it together with an open mind. Decide what to do after that. Long silence. I waited through it. Finally, he let out his breath, stared up at the roof of the car. You owe me one. Cool. I said, opening up the driver's side door. It was as good a start as any. As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace No Sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mikulski. Jeff Clement and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor in chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit the NoSleepPodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. 
No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.